How are we all doing? Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Clubbing, club culture and dance music formed a massive part of my youth and adulthood. The dance floor is one of the first places where I felt able to express myself, be myself and not be judged. Since then, I always say to people I feel most at one with myself or at home with myself on a dance floor or in the middle of a field listening to live music. My special guest for this week's episode is an academic and an expert on club culture itself. Her name is Karenza Moore. She is a lecturer in sociology of crime at Newcastle University and the founder of Club Research. Club Research is the home of Karenza's academic research on the use of alcohol, illegal drugs, novel psychoactive substances, drug policy, the nighttime economy and dance music club cultures and drug research methods and ethics. This research has been given funding by other universities as well as the European Union. Karenza has been researching and writing about drugs for 18 years and her research explores the prevalence, use patterns, emerging drug trends, meanings, motivations and consequences of drug use, especially poly drug use and drug use in recreational settings. That includes illegal raves, clubs, festivals and after parties. In this episode we discuss Karenza's academic journey, how she came to found club research, the importance of clubs as cultural institutions, the relationships between psychedelics and mental health, a discussion about the medicinal benefits of drugs like MDMA and LSD versus the harms and how we break down the stigma behind not going out. We also talk about the eating disorder Karenza lived with between the ages of 15 to 30 years old, how she overcame it and how raving and clubbing massively helped her in her recovery. The final part of our conversation concerns the issues she's had with benzodiazepine and the collective trauma we are all trying to overcome brought about by COVID-19. So this is how my check-in with Karenza Moore went. Karenza Moore. Welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. I am so excited for this one as I'm a music nerd. So discussing a topic that has given me so much joy in life is something I'm very, very excited for. How are you? How are you getting on? I'm very well, Freddie. Uh, Good morning. Thank you very much for um, coming on and uh, discussing club culture, discussing, we'll probably have a bit of music chat off air once (laughs) uh, once we finish this too, I imagine. I'm going to have so much fun on this one, Karenza, and you're going to discuss a few issues which... I hope will help loads of my listeners. So without further delay, shall we start the show? Yeah, thanks, Freddie. I want to talk about your academic journey first, Karenza. So why don't you tell me how and why you got into it and what inspired you to go beyond just your undergrad? (laughs) Okay, yeah, sure. So the main thing that inspired me, at least originally, was probably going out to some of the first raves around the London area. And I was actually at school as a bit of a tear away. And I started going to these events, 15, 16, 15, 16 years of age. And there was just something about them that I felt really inspiring, meeting lots of different people and just seeing a different perspective on life. So if you think this was sort of London in the late 80s, early 90s, 
very different place to what it is now. Very okay. different place, yeah. East, East London. London. East London. I mean, I was born and raised in East London. East London was a very different place. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, it was uh, very kind of colourful, I guess. The people that we were meeting when we were out was me and a couple of friends that were also tearaways to a certain extent. But actually what it did inspire me to do was concentrate on my studies. So at the time, <laughs> I wasn't doing that well. And a couple of teachers sort of pulled us aside and said, you need to pull your finger out get on with some work and I felt like going to these events sort of made me think there's a bigger world out there that I wanted to explore kind of convinced myself that I need to get myself to college and so I did that went to uni and obviously I had a really fab time at, at uni and the other thing that kind of inspired me is I did well at uni I was offered a scholarship to do a master's and I think that's one of the other important things to think about in terms of people having access to education because obviously I'm not going to say how old I am but we didn't pay fees at that time so thinking about getting into debt which I think as you probably know what you know working class families don't particularly like the idea of getting into lots of debt particularly as it was then but the debt issue wasn't a thing that I had to worry about because we didn't pay at the time and so I obviously then went on took up this scholarship and went on to do a PhD after that Around for my master's, I looked particularly at eating disorders, and then in my PhD, I looked particularly at the ideas of the future of mobile technology among young people. And so, I kind of feel like the whole way through my academic career, attending those first events and kind of being involved in club culture has always had quite an influence on what I'm looking at, even if it's just you know looking at what young people are into or things like that. Tell me how you started club research then and why you took that step to make the link between something you loved which was club culture as your hobby and also you did a bit of promoting in London as well and academia itself. Yeah I mean it was really funny because I actually my first couple of contract jobs your research contracts were looking at gender and technology which was sort of more aligned to what my PhD was about Uh, as I said it was sort of looking at uh, young people's ideas about the future of technologies and Interestingly, that's kind of become a kind of theme in my research around emergent drug trends as well. So that sort of takes us back to that. But I think that what I started to do was obviously go out to events in London. And I was living in London at the time, at Clapham Junction, and going to lots of events and just thinking there's so many interesting things here that are going on because I was doing sociology PhD. I was thinking there's so many interesting things going on here and not many people are really writing about them. So I finished my PhD and when I was doing contract work in Manchester, again, obviously going to lots of events, I just started writing about clubbing and it sort of went from there. That's another thing that's really important if you're trying to combine something that you're interested in as a hobby and and in relation to your career. It might not always be directly linked, but there's all the kind of ideas and the vibes and the feelings that you get from clubbing and being in starts music that can kind of inform your work. So for example, I'm doing some stuff at the moment around talking and listening to young people about their opinions on drug policy. So, you know, it's obviously not specifically about clubbing, but the idea is to kind of actually obviously talk and listen to, to what young people say, whatever it might be about. So, you know, future of the climate or drug use or whatever it is. I think that's really important, at least in sociology, that's my discipline. As you were taking your first steps into this subject, ketamine was becoming a big party drug on the scene. And that surprised me a lot when the trend started, because if anyone knows about ketamine and what it does to your body, you'll know why I'm saying that's a surprising thing. Did that shock you as well, that the kids have started using it to go out rather than to... Yeah, no, that's really interesting, Freddie, and I think it's a really important issue. So this is related to emerging drug trends and whether or not the drugs that emerge within a particular scene are accepted or not by the people that are in that scene. 
and I thought it's really interesting. There was a, some work that we did with an academic down at Bath, sort of the Bristol area, which is known for having quite a ketamine scene and also quite a free party scene at the time as well. It's quite similar mm. now. And actually there was a quite a mixed feelings around the clubbers. I don't know, maybe they weren't clubbers. They were more kind of free party goers. And there was quite a lot of mixed feelings around ketamine for exactly the reasons that you said, that because it, it's not really a dance drug. I mean, people do dance on it, but it's not a stimulant. So that's the biggest no. difference. People do obviously dance on ketamine, but it's not uh, a stimulant such as MDMA ecstasy. So I actually think that was sort of at the heart of it. It was almost like people that were against ketamine in the scene were frustrated that people weren't moving in the way that they thought people should. And I think that's really mm. interesting because I think one of the things that happens is that people think that clubs and parties and raves and everything are these kind of rule-less places, you know, that there's anything goes and there's no rules and you can do what you want. But actually, there are actually quite a lot of social norms and rules and things that you can and can't do if you think about you know if someone's really drunk and they come into a space where most people are taking MDMA and dancing that you can always notice the really drunk person because they look different <laughs> to everybody else and I think that's what happened with ketamine so, so it was interesting that we did a special issue on ketamine it came out in 2008 and it was basically this you know collection of academics that were writing about ketamine at the time and you know the main thing that came out I guess was that People used it, but for quite different purposes. So as time went on, it was being used more and more after parties rather than in the main event. And that kind of happened throughout sort of 2000s into the 2010s. But more recently, it's interesting because there's been a bit of a rise of ketamine use more in outside, you know, outside spaces, not just yeah, at after definitely. parties. Uh, I think I noticed this. I remember going to a festival in Leeds, I don't know, it's like five years ago or something. And I just couldn't believe how everyone was on ketamine. It's really funny. Mostly techno. You can always yeah, notice it was, as well. it was interesting yeah. just again seeing that way that people move their bodies is very different to, to if they're consuming mm. MDMA. So that's really interesting, I think, is that idea of these spaces, leisure spaces, recreational drug use in these spaces where, you know, supposedly everything, anything goes. But as I said, it's, I think there are quite a lot of social norms around what people should and shouldn't do. It's quite interesting. Your first research paper was on the concept of clubs as cultural institutions and the link to self-expression. And this is something that Germany have put into place quite well, actually, in preserving clubs as historical institutions. Can you explain that research through a mental health? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So that was my first paper. So, yeah, so we're looking really at just what clubbing means to young people as we were then. I mean, this is 2003, four, something like that when it came out. So I just was really interested in what, what does clubbing mean to clubbers? What does it mean? What does the music mean? What does the drug use mean? And what came out really, and I think this is something that probably a lot of clubbers know, but doesn't get talked about. Firstly, I think it doesn't get talked about because there's quite a negative portrayal of club culture, I think, more generally in the media and in sort of discourse. Mm. The risks and the harms of clubbing are often focused on what we found in our study was that people found comfort in clubbing. It wasn't necessarily escapism in the sense that they were trying to escape from something. And I think this is a really important point because they said that they were trying to escape or they wanted to escape or they felt like it was an escape to somewhere better, somewhere where they could kind of express themselves, be themselves, which sounds quite cheesy, but I think it's actually... One of the most important things in life is that to be able to express who you feel like you are. And I think that's what people would say. So I actually found that so interesting. It was a juxtaposition between the very kind of negative 
portrayal of a representation, almost like a demonization of rave and club culture, which I think is still going on today. And the comfort and the help that club has felt like going out uh, mm. offers them. And I think one of the reasons that that's often not thought about is because, again, people don't often listen to clubbers. If you think about what's been going on in the pandemic, you know, with nightclubs shut and, you know, there's been a lot of campaigning around being allowed to dance again and all that kind of stuff. I think that that has maybe highlighted a little bit just how important music and clubbing is to a lot of people, not just young people, you know, quite a wide range of people in lots of different countries. And as you said, Berlin has done quite well, I think, or Germany has done quite well in terms of maybe institutionalising club culture a little bit more than we do here. On the other hand, it is quite difficult because the club culture in Germany is very different to the UK. I think some people find it a little bit more closed in terms of who it welcomes. And I think that's interesting. It's Mm. interesting. I've done some work across different European countries around drug use and British clubbers and festival goers have got a reputation for being the friendliest, the friendliest group, (laughs) but also the most smashed at any point in time, which I think is really interesting. I think there is something about the way that different people in different countries approach clubbing. And you definitely notice that if you've ever been clubbing abroad or even just going to Ibiza when you you see different nationalities clubbing together. I think I always think that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. And there's that I think there's a kind of famous saying in club culture that wherever you go, you can normally spot a Scot or someone from Glasgow yeah. in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, that's the same <laughs> Despite the fact that despite the fact that Scotland has got one of the smallest populations <laughs> in relation to most of the rest yeah, of the Yeah, that's Europe. true. Uh, in the trance scene, I was involved in the trance scene for years and that was the same with Northern Irish clubbers. <laughs> there was always somebody from Northern Ireland. <laughs> I think that's one of the great things about it, isn't it? My opening question to them was always, are you Scottish? Yes. Do you like Jackmaster? Yes. No. Do you like Dennis Salter? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> and they depended on that. You see where you go. <laughs> yeah exactly you see what the barometer is for their music taste. yeah, yeah so I mean that's something else we've been doing over the years in relation to research kind of around club drugs and music is a study that we did in it was in Manchester looking at different music genres dance music genres and at the time it was kind of like funky house was big that we looked at drum and brace yes. trance oh. and also hard dance which is an interesting mm-hmm. genre. It kind of crosses over industrial techno now. Is that like hardcore? Yeah, kind of, of like, yeah. It's kind of like a, the subgenre of house that was very like hardcore. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah, hardcore, yeah, yeah. but probably a little bit more trancey than hardcore. Yeah. So, And it's interesting actually now because some of the industrial techno nights that are on in Manchester, they play hard dance, which just makes me laugh because I think, oh my God, it's like 20 years ago. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, we were looking at different genres and what kinds of drug use were was prevalent in all of them. And there were differences. So... In the drum and bass night at the time, there was this was before smoking bag. Well, actually, no, it was after. People were still smoking weed, but also a bit of MDMA use. In the funky house night, the main drug of choice, that's how we present it, what is people's drug of choice, was powder cocaine and then MDMA. And then in the trance night and the hard dance night, it was MDMA. And I thought that kind of makes perfect sense. You know, there's a lot of research around in this area is about capturing the data of things that you and I and others probably know to be true. You know, but it, it's about being able to capture that data and, and demonstrate what's going on. And that paper was important because we were looking at harm reduction initiatives. And what we were saying is what music people are into, the spaces that they go to, the harm reduction advice they need might be different because they might be using slightly different substances. So. I want to move on to MDMA mm-hmm. now, which is a drug which has been intrinsic, I guess, to a lot of club culture ever since the early days of Chicago House, Acid House in Manchester. 
And many people in the wider public associate MDMA with famous examples of deaths of young people out mm-hmm. clubbing. It will be an MDMA or an ecstasy pill that's laced with PMA or toxins. Can you break down this one-dimensional viewpoint, Carenza? Because it's something that David Nutt does when it comes to like harm reduction and what pure MDMA actually does to mm-hmm. the system. And why actually MDMA and XC supply has been contaminated so much in the UK, mm-hmm. I guess, in the last sort of few years and maybe and maybe decades. Um, so I'd start by saying that one of the, well, the biggest issue with MDMA is that it's sold, bought and sold on an illegal market. So if MDMA as a substance was sold in a legal regulated market, like we do with alcohol then a lot of the issues they wouldn't all disappear obviously because a black market would still probably exist but that would be the kind of main way of dealing with the harms of mdma because most of the harms of mdma come from the fact it's prohibited substance if you think about the way that mdma is used in clinical trials so i'm sure you're probably aware that mdma has been Oh, it has been trialled now. It's on stage three clinical trials around being used to support people with PTSD. PTSD. So mental health issues. So and it's interesting. So in 2019, it took me three years, wrote a report for Beckley Foundation, which basically laid out a roadmap for legal regulation of MDMA. So basically a way of saying, how do we get from where we are now through decriminalisation into a legally regulated market? So it's quite an idealistic peace in a sense and I probably don't think that's going to happen in our lifetime but on the other hand one of the things that we did was gather up all the evidence around the risks and harms of MDMA spent three years analyzing all this stuff and it does seem like prohibition you know the fact it's a an illegal substance produces more of the harms than the substance itself so you mentioned about contamination so if you think about the production process of MDMA so in the UK most of the MDMA that comes into this country is from the Netherlands and Belgium. And there's a little bit more home pressing now in the UK, and it looks like that's related to difficulties with supply from Belgium and Holland at the moment because of the pandemic. So these things do change. But what's happened is because of the way that prohibition has sort of disrupted the MDMA market, a new kind of precursor was made in about 2014, PMK, which makes it a lot easier to produce quite high strength MDMA. So you've probably seen a lot of the reports around pills that are, I've got, say, 350 milligrams of MD in them, which is an incredibly high dose. Active dose is probably about between 80 milligrams and 120. So you're looking at like three times the active dose of a pill. So if you think about, you know, someone that's never used MDMA before, if they take that, they, they're not going to have a good time. So I think one of the kind of biggest issues is MDMA and ecstasy so linked to dance culture you know, the two are kind of synonymous, really. It doesn't mm. mean that everyone takes MD when they're <laughs> out. It doesn't mean that, you know, you can't enjoy music without drugs. But it does mean that there's a kind of cultural connection between MD and darts culture. So we've had 30 years of darts culture as we know it now. And we've also had 30 years of MD being, you know, class A drug. You know, yep. it's been, it's not particularly the focus of the police in the same way that crack and heroin are. But, you know, the police do obviously have live operations to disrupt the supply. There was a viral tweet that they were doing oh, on Oh, gosh, yes, recently. yeah, I saw about that. Big debate about whether or not hand swabbing for drugs is a good idea. And yeah. that's probably a whole new I'll have a, have a programme, I think. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. The people that are dance clubbers, young people, partygoers that use MD are subject to police attention, aren't they? So that's really problematic because that in itself causes issues. So that therefore means that, the drug itself, MD, is not necessarily the problem. It could be that, you know, a young person goes to a festival, 
they've got something on um the see police dog there's some research in australia that, that points this out that people will often commit more risky practices when they panic because they think i've got something on me I don't, I don't want to take it, take it on. Carry the risk. I'll do it all exactly, instead of yeah. a small amount yeah, at a time. Exactly. Yeah. So as I said, there's been some interesting research in Australia about that's pretty much exactly what people do. Drug dogs, they found that they only deter about four or five percent of people from taking drugs in at all. So in terms of a deterrent, drug dogs aren't great. So all these different measures that are put in place by law enforcement to kind of disrupt supply and catch users, in a sense heighten the impact of MDMA as a, as a substance. Mixing it with alcohol as well is another one. And I think one of the things that's changed over the years, and it sounds cheesy because people say, oh, back in the day, the biggest thing back in the day was the alcohol wasn't sold in such a prominent way. So the alcohol industry, it was obviously there, but it wasn't quite as dominant as it is today in terms of its presence in the nighttime economy. So alcohol is an accepted drug now, isn't it? When people go out, there's much more of a poly drug use. So mixing alcohol and other drugs. So we've talked about ketamine. So you get a lot more people doing MD, cannabis, ketamine on a night out rather than just MD. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. So poly drug use is something that I think clubbers need to think about, not necessarily as, as an issue, but thinking about the potential risk of mixing stuff. Alcohol is definitely one of those where you have to be careful. You talked there about the medicinal trials and people like David Nutt talk about the effects of pure MDMA in relation to sort of emotional openness, a heightened sense of self and being able to unlock traumatic memories that, you know, especially for men, we find it very hard to do that. And we have to build up a lot of trust with someone to open up on those traumatic memories. MDMA, I imagine, would do that to someone and help them unlock that in a in a safe setting. So... What would you say to people then who say that drugs like MDMA are harmful, dangerous, and we should be enforcing a criminal-based approach to them, not harm reduction? I'd say that the evidence doesn't point to that policy. So if we think about policy as attempting to reduce harm, okay, so you know we've seen a lot of policy recently, public health policy around keeping people safe. So if you think about this idea of safety is basically a reduction of harm. So someone either doesn't fall ill and they don't die. OK, so if you put in harm reduction policies instead of prohibition policies, So what I've just mentioned about how the issues with prohibition make MDMA and other drugs more risky. Harm reduction, the whole point of harm reduction is to reduce the harms. So if you look at those two, that, that's a bit of a binary and you can still have harm reduction options in a prohibition space. So if you think about drug testing that charities like The Loop have been doing at festivals. Yeah. That's a way of dealing with the harms of prohibition because it's trying to give users information about what's in the pill or the powder that they might be taking. So that's a harm reduction initiative within the prohibition space. But in a sense, if we had a legally regulated market, people would know what was in their pills and they wouldn't need to worry in that sense. And the harm reduction would all be about the setting that they're taking it in, for example. So in that sense, I would say that the main issue with policing-led approach, prohibition approach, A, it doesn't work because we've got still got a huge MDMA market in the UK. So that's the first thing. It doesn't work very well, although they would say it does. But in terms of police interaction with clubbers, most clubbers never really interact with the police apart from having to go past a drug dog or whatever. It's not a market that is characterised by violence, for example. So I think it's really important to think about the way that we approach drugs and that also we might want to approach different drugs differently. So we might want to have different policies for 
I don't know, heroin um, for MD. And exactly. we can kind of check. I mean, if you think all, about yeah. classification, so, you know, MDMA is a class A substance and that has implications for penalties that people are given. But heroin is mm-hmm. also a class A substance. People that are dependent on heroin often struggle because they get caught in the criminal justice system and just go round and round and round. It's really hard to access treatment. There's been loads of treatment cuts recently. They commit crime to Yeah, I mean, there's, an, there's yeah, an element yeah. of that. But actually, if you think about, I mean, uh, quite a lot of sex workers, for example, have got dependency issues. Yeah. They've got, also got trauma issues. And this mm. is about dealing with people that really need, you know, some of the kind of trauma-informed... Yeah. They're broken Yeah, people. exactly. Yeah. And so I get frustrated about the criminalisation of young people taking drugs in recreational spaces, but also having looked over the years at done some work around treatment and recovery organizations criminalization of drugs actually really harms the most marginalized groups of people as well as young people yeah as well as young clubbers who tend to be not particularly marginalized but it also marginalized some of the people that need our help the most so that's what's really frustrating just going mm. back to what you said around young men and being able to express your feelings and that actually helping you know to to talk about issues around mental health and there's some, been some really interesting research from America in what are considered bro culture, I guess you'd call it. And there the, it was by a, a professor called Jeffrey Hunt. And he was talking about how young men, in particular American young men, felt that going to raves, taking MDMA, and particularly after parties, that was one of the things I found interesting in those spaces where people hang out after the main event and get chatting 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 and chatting chatting for hours listening to music all that kind of stuff that that was an environment where they felt like they could really open up and that they weren't going to be judged for it and they weren't going to be called gay because there's a lot of you know stigma as well isn't there about men talk about their feelings and you know all that kind of stuff so yeah so I think it's a a really interesting it's a really interesting substance Mm. and you know it's a shame in a sense that we've had so many years of not undertaking research clinical research on substances such as MDMA cannabis is the obvious one as well and ketamine just because of the stigma and the kind of well the classification of those substances you know meant Mm. that it was hard it's hard for researchers to get hold of them and be able to do clinical trials a lot of the clinical trials for MDMA are actually funded by charitable organizations rather than drug companies so that's interesting I often find a cognitive dissonance here with people who say you know on the prohibition side all drugs should be illegal people should be jailed for doing them they should be punished and you shouldn't do them because you don't know what's in Mm. them but then at the same time are against regulation which would literally purify them and give people clarity (laughs) about what's in them so do you think at the worst end of the spectrum that dissonance is costing lives or are you more balanced Um, about it that's quite a hard question i think yeah i think the drug i mean i call it the war on drugs harm reduction organisations that emerged from Liverpool actually that say that there's always said a war on drugs is a war on drug users and I think that's probably quite a good way of putting it. I think it's easy to demonise drug users because there's so many almost like moral failings attached to them so people that take drugs particularly those who are dependent but but more generally Mm. is you know people are weak and they're somehow you know trying to escape something and that they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be trying, to, you know, to take drugs to somehow make themselves feel better. And I don't think actually a lot of people do that. David Nutt would say we're all drugs. Yeah, users. of course. Coffee, I mean, caffeine. Yeah, of course. Else, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, uh, as I said this morning, I was a little bit sleepy, <laughs> you know, Sunday morning, and I have a couple of strong coffees for my Nespresso, <laughs> and uh, then you sort it out, you basically. <laughs> so yeah. I think the other thing is interesting is that you know, like a lot, we've encouraged a lot of the time to 
to do exercise and keep our bodies healthy. You know, if you think about clubbing, going out, people were standing and dancing and, you know, moving their bodies for hours and hours on end. But that's never seen as a, a sort of form of healthy exercise. I always thought that was really funny. <laughs> it's a good way to lose weight, yeah, I'll tell you that. Well, me. it's interesting. Back in the day, there was some studies by kind of feminist ravers, I guess you'd say, uh, feminist academics who were also ravers. And they were looking at how young women in particular in the early 90s managed their body weight by going raving. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I think there's also a bit of a body ideal in club culture. I don't think people are particularly judgmental about you know, different kinds of bodies and different kinds of people. But on the other hand, I do feel like there is a little bit of a body ideal, you know, slim and fit and that kind of thing. That's also quite interesting and maybe a little bit of pressure on young men as well to kind of look a certain way as a clubber. So, so there's so many interesting aspects of club culture, I think, that kind of relate to people's perception of the, you know, body confidence their relationships with friends and family as well you know how much being into music can kind of bring people pleasure and happiness and connections with other people as well what do you think regulating or even legalizing psychedelics like mdma or lsd would do for people's mental health do you think it would make us a less divided nation i think david nutt's probably argued that yeah that's interesting i suppose you could say well in a sense there is a a substance alcohol that is you know pretty widely available you know I sometimes people say well if you say to me well if you want all drugs to be legally regulated then you must support the alcohol industry because that's a legally regulated industry which is I think of a bit of a snidey argument I think but anyway and I sort of say well at the end of the day I would never say that we should make alcohol illegal it would be a disaster like it was in the prohibition era in the 1920s you know it was a it was a disaster everyone just kept making alcohol and it became quite a dangerous just games ran rampant exactly yeah yeah, exactly so I think that's probably the one of the things I'd say the second thing so one of the biggest concerns that people have if you say oh we want to legally regulate a substance is that all of a sudden loads of people will start taking it and I always say to that that the reason people do take drugs isn't because they're either legal or illegal it's what they want from that substance you know, and whether or not they come into contact with people that take it, for example. So whether a drug is illegal or not doesn't really figure in people's decisions as to whether to take that drug. I think a lot of young people in particular, they might be aware of the classification of MDMA, but I really don't think that thinking about its legal status is the main reason that people... Less people are doing them as well. (laughs) Gen Z aren't doing drugs as much anyway anymore, or drinking. Well, that's that's an interesting one. Freddie, I think, yeah, I think drug use changes, doesn't it? One thing I've noticed definitely, and this is sort of borne out in the figures, is the reduction in drinking amongst what I think of, yeah. you know, 18, 19-year-olds. The techno scene in Manchester is really young. And one of the things I notice when I'm out is just how many people are not drinking. You know, as some of the bigger mm. venues, you go and the bars are pretty much empty. You know, you have a full venue and there's no one queuing at the bar. And um, people's demeanour is obviously not more related to MD use than alcohol. So, yeah, I think it sort of changes, doesn't it? What is and isn't fashionable. That's something else that's interesting in relation to club drug use is what's in fashion. I'm too old to use words like sick and cool. I've got no idea how people describe what's cool <laughs> and sick or whatever. But I think that fashioning drugs is really important. There was a point 
around sort of 2014-15 where MD or pills in particular were perceived as quite kind of chabby I hate that word sorry but you know perceived in a particular way and a lot of young people moved on to MD crystal and powder because it was perceived to be more of a premium product I think that's still the case certainly so it's changed a little bit pills have made quite a comeback but that's the thing that's things wax and wane and it often relates to things like how pure the substances are around. At the time, MD was really low purity and a lot of people were taking novel psychoactive substances like legal highs. And then as soon as MD came back and its purity improved, that meant that more people were interested in taking it. People were having a better time. So from sort of like 2016, 17, MD use started rising again and started being more popular. So so these things come and go, don't they? I think that's kind yeah, of Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a harm reduction angle even then, because, you know, you could have a young person who mm. doesn't want to take half a pill or a full pill because they don't know how strong it might be. But if they take an eighth of a gram of pure MDMA crystal, then they might see it as more safe. You know, yeah. you can argue yeah, that. Yeah, 100%. You can argue the other way for that, but that's probably what they yeah, were thinking. Yeah, 100%, um, definitely. And perceptions are really important. So perceptions of safety, you know, are really, really important. Also where people get their substances from so there is quite a concern if people are getting stuff off the dark net that they don't have those sort of interactions with the dealer that might be saying oh watch out these pills are really strong so it's that anonymous transaction which can be quite problematic there's a charity called anyone's child and Amory Cockburn who set the charity up her daughter passed away from buying MD crystal from the dark net and it was actually really pure she took she ended up taking like enough for about four people and sadly, she passed away. And one of the things that Amory says, and anyone's child, the charity does, is to sort of try and point out that we we need to give young people information, edu- or all people actually, information and education. Because if Martha had known that she shouldn't have been having that much, then she wouldn't have had that much. So this is pretty much as simple as that. You need to, it's that need mm. to know, rather than trying to keep it a secret and brush it under the carpet. You know, it just needs to be out there in the open. People talk about it and find out what should you do if your mate gets into trouble. So a lot of people, for example, don't know that if you call an ambulance and it's about drugs, the police don't turn up. So people are scared to call for help because they're worried about the legal implications. The main thing, sort of message there is if, if anyone's ever gets in trouble, just go and ask for help. So it's an important thing, message to, to get across, I think. Let's move on to dance safe now, because as much as we all love a night out, sometimes there is a stigma behind being pressured to go out. I feel like that stigma is not as prominent with the young people anymore because they're not going out as much. Can you tell me about dance safe and the work you do in that? And how does it become dangerous if people go out when they're not feeling? That's such a good question. So I think this element gets forgotten about. I can't remember the name of the tune, but there's this tune, sort of pet house, I don't know what it is, that says something about... I don't want to go out tonight. I don't feel right. And I'm thinking that should just be a little message, shouldn't it? You know, if you're not feeling up for it, just don't bother. I know we've all been out, you know, those nights that you go out and you're not really that bothered and sometimes they're the best nights ever. But other times, you know, if you go out, I did this recently. I was was teaching up in Newcastle. I came home. I went out for a meal with some former colleagues at Salford Uni. I had, I think, one glass of wine, hardly ever drink. Went out on a night out and I think I left by about one o'clock in the morning. I was so tired. I felt rough. And I just thought, why did I do that? I've just pushed myself too far. The important thing is if you're not feeling great, you need to think of yourself as almost like topping up your energy levels. We used to say this like Raven in the 90s that you had to look after yourself during the week 
because if you wanted to be out all weekends, you couldn't start the weekend from like a base of like 20%. Do you know what I mean? You needed to be like 100% before you get your dancing shoes on. So I think that's really important. Like trying to look after your physical and mental health, almost like a, a kind of marathon, I guess, you know, prepping mm. for a marathon. If you don't feel right, don't go out. And I think that's that's an important message. I think people, as you say, maybe feel a bit of pressure to go out. Well, I was wondering about this after the pandemic, whether this fear of missing out, because young people have been under lockdown for so long. You know, I was wondering whether people would feel pressurised to go out, but I'm not really seeing that particularly, I don't think. So, yeah, it's it's an important one. Some more practical things like having a proper meal. I don't, you know, you do that thing where you're, like, you're in a rush to get out and you're going to meet someone before you go out and, you know, you think, oh, I'll just literally have a sandwich. <laughs> you know, just things like that of having a decent meal, having a decent night's sleep beforehand. And, you know, I sort of slightly feel like I'm sounding like my mum now, but <laughs> I think it's important. <laughs> and it's easy to forget when you're caught up in the moment of getting ready and getting excited about something. The other thing is about getting home safely as well. I think that's, mm. again, sounded like my mum. My mum used to say to me, Go out with £10 in your wallet just in case you can't get back. I mean, £10 now wouldn't get you home, especially if it was cash, would it? <laughs> you, know, you would get picked up. But it is really important to at least have some vague plan of where you're going back to. And I think that's that's really important as well. The final part of this journey you wanted to talk about, Carenza, was concerning drugs like Cerax and benzodiazepine. This is quite a prominent thing in the US. Mm. You know, a lot of emo trap artists talk about opioids quite openly. How do people use these after clubbing? And what did you want to discuss about this through a mental health lens? Uh, yeah, I think this is something, you know, what we're saying about how important tracking emerging drug trends are. One of the things that's happened over the last sort of, well, they've always been present, but illicit medications, partly because they've been available or, you know, on the dark net online, through kind of online pharmacies. Also, there's quite a big street market for illicit medications. So that might include something like Xanax. I'm not 100% sure if listeners will mm. be familiar with some of these drugs, but they're basically in the benzodiazepine family. There's also less so, this is less so with clubbers, but other drugs like gabapentines, which have proved to be really problematic. So these are medications that would be prescribed by your GP or prescribing doctor or whatever, but they're actually available on the street. And often they're novel psychoactive versions of them. So they're like black benzos, that's what I call them. You know, they're kind of fakes basically, but they still have quite a negative impact on people. So one of the things that we found, particularly looking at students and student parties and student clubbers, that there was young people that taking benzos, and this sort of does make sense because they make you very sleepy. They act on your GABA, which is the same thing that alcohol acts on. And so it sort of makes you relax a lot. Okay. So if you think about people who've been out, you know, they've been on a stimulant for however many hours, eight, 10 hours or whatever. And people start, oh God, I want to go to bed now. So traditionally people would smoke a joint maybe to get to sleep. Ketamine's to a certain extent used in that way as well. But there has been a kind of addition of benzodiazepines by some young people and I think one of the issues that people sometimes don't realize with these substances is that a dependency forming so if you're prescribed them you're not normally prescribed them for more than a month so if you think about someone taking a substance you know from the street that is taking it more than a month that can actually be quite dangerous and it's easy to get dependent on them to a certain extent and it's also extremely hard to ask for help as well because they sit in this weird space between recreational drug use which is like md and ketamine and then obviously what we think of as problem drug use where people use crack cocaine or inject heroin and they're yeah. kind of in the weird middle 
like you said, they are legal and they are prescribed. And in the US, you know, you can actually purchase these substances, not so much now after, yeah, after the opioid crisis. And um, there's also things like lean as well, which is a sort of almost like a cough mixture, kind of codeine, opiate mixed with various different things. So these substances fit in this sort of weird third space. And I think sometimes it's quite confusing to people. They think, oh, it's a medication, so it can't be that bad. I think the opioid crisis in the US has shown us that things that drug manufacturers make can actually be really dangerous. So an interesting trend. It's been quite hard to pick up. In Scotland, benzodiazepines have been used for a long time by problem drug users. But it is interesting and also quite worrying that it's sometimes being used by clubbers as well. So I guess if anyone's listened to this, just to think about maybe finding out a little bit more information about benzodiazepines if people are taking them and think about try and find out more information and think about some of the issues that they can lead to. And as a final question before we move on, what has this academic journey taught you about yourself? <laughs> That's a good question. Probably that I am a massive warrior. <laughs> um, so I also suffer from generalised anxiety disorder. So that's where the worry is. <laughs> um, so I think that one of the issues with academia and studying, and I know this from having taught, you know, students, sociology, criminology, social work students for well, like 18 years or so now. The pressure to perform, I don't quite know what performance looks like, changes over time. You know, and obviously as you get further on in your career, what you're expected to produce, you know, the level that it's expected to be increases unfairly. You know, that's that's how life is, isn't it? So that pressure to kind of get forever better and better and better and improve yourself, I think is quite, I found quite hard. And I know that my students feel incredible pressure to do well in you know, just do well basically so that's one of the things I found I've probably learned about myself that that pressure does make me feel quite anxious and it can kind of manifest itself in almost like the rabbit in the headlights feeling you know when you've got loads of work you feel like you've got a lot of responsibility and you almost don't know where to start and that's quite anxiety provoking I think also over the years I've probably used different maybe less helpful ways of coping than others and I think that's something else you can it is important I've learned about myself is that the things that you turn to to cope with difficulties, trauma, bullying, whatever it might be, can be more or less helpful to you. And sometimes the things that are less helpful are easier to turn to than the things that are more helpful. So the more helpful thing is to ask for help. That's actually a, probably the most difficult thing that I think anyone can do. And if anyone that ever asks for help around mental health issues, I think is already a hero. <laughs> or a hero you know just to ask for help so I think that's important something else I've had to learn as well to ask for help <laughs> even just from colleagues so that's you know I think that's really important so the choices that people make around what coping strategies they're going to turn to are really important and some of those choices aren't always available to people so I got really into Pilates when I was having mental health issues and I did a course on Pilates but that course was like two grand and it was a brilliant course. Absolutely love it. I can teach Pilates now. I do Pilates nearly every day. But that course wouldn't be available to most people. Okay, it's two grand. You can't just whip two grand out your pocket, can you? For a hobby, yeah. yeah it's exactly. A bit much. And for something, you know, same with counselling, isn't it? Or therapy. If you think yeah. about, you know, I've done quite a lot of work around young people's mental health in relation to clubbing over the years. And the mental health services that are available to young people 
for free by the NHS are chronically underfunded. There's not enough therapists, there's not there's too long waiting times. Assessment, people are pushed into certain things because they're the cheaper option. You know, that's really problematic. One of the things I've learned, I guess, is that I'm in a very privileged and lucky position to be able to turn to coping mechanisms that are healthy and that not everyone has that opportunity. And I think it's really important. I'm a big believer in, you know, therapy for all. I think that anyone that's puts themselves forward and says, I really need help. Everyone should literally rush into that person and say, oh my God, you've asked for help, Leah. what can we do to help? Do you know what I mean? I think that doesn't often happen. It's more like this labyrinthine journey, especially for young people through children and mental health services, trying to get any help around eating disorders, which we talked about before, you know, it's really, really difficult. So the question was about how I'm helping myself, but I'm thinking, I'm trying to say that I think the thing I've learned about myself is you do just have to reach out and ask for support and some people are lucky to get that others aren't but if you reach out then that's part of the journey isn't it really we've talked about your academic journey Karenza let's talk about your own journey so first of all I ask all my special guests this question first tell me about early life teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint who's the Carenza we meet here <laughs> so I mentioned right at the beginning about my friends finding raves I don't know how to put it bunking <laughs> off school to go to <laughs> my, I hope my mum's not listening to this honestly <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, yeah so I talked about that and one of the reasons that was really helpful to me at the time was not long before we'd had a kind of family tragedy I guess and I'd actually started to restrict what I was eating. And this, at the time, I hadn't realised that, you know, that would become an issue. I think it's interesting because it was, as a teenage girl, you know, in the 90s, I think that sort of made sense. I mentioned about the kind of body ideal, but also mm. that feeling of wanting to control where I was going, you know, how my life was going to turn out and that kind of thing. So that really emerged as an issue. I nearly didn't end up going to university after all my hard work at college because I was too lower weight. And over that summer before you go to uni, you know, when everyone's going and buying their like pots and pans and duvets and all that kind of stuff, I was basically on like a feeding program. And they were like, if you get to this weight, you can go to uni. So I was like, right, okay, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Yeah, so I did that. And then as soon as I got to uni, I lost all of that and all of that weight and more, which is apparently a very typical thing for people to do. But obviously not, again, not realising, not having anyone to talk to, not having any services particularly to help me understand what was going on. So basically at uni with quite severe anorexia, but I went to University of East Anglia and weirdly the head office of BEAT, which at the time was like the main eating disorders charity, was in Norwich. So I ended up volunteering, this is weird, volunteering a bit on the phones with them and then eventually they were like, you know, come on, you probably need to get some help yourself. And that's how I ended up doing my master's about eating disorders and about an eating disorder facility in Norwich. So there's this kind of intermingling of academic research, but also concern about achieving academically. And then also, I guess, just typical teenage female woman concerns as well. So I've always seen that, I always feel like that the work, it might be academic work, but it might also be you know, work that people, other kinds of work that people feel passionate about can be a really positive thing in people's lives, but it can also be a massive source of pressure and stress. And I think sometimes, Mm. uh, particularly when you're building your career, and I think those years of 
the sort of 20s into your 30s where you're trying to build your career and there's a lot of pressure on you and you've also you know obviously trying to save up for deposit for you know a flat to rent or whatever it might be there's all these pressures isn't there so yeah I think as a teenager eating disorders were, were quite an issue but again as I said I think that was probably related to academic pressure that I put on myself and that mm. was there in the system really. One of the things you explored in your dissertation was the distinction between people before their recovery and after it and can they be a different person so from your perspective do you feel like a different person now to back Yes then? I think I am uh, but I think it's interesting because one of the things my work at the time looked at was that idea of if you've had a mental health issue, can you ever say that you're recovered? And actually, people with drug dependency issues have this same debate. You know, it's in the recovery services. It's the similar debate around, are you always in recovery or can you say you're recovered? And I always say, well, whatever you feel, <laughs> choose which one, choose yeah. which other one is, works for you. I did some work because I live in Manchester, did some work in Greater Manchester and Lancashire around recovery services you know the support that people were getting to deal with drug issues and the main thing that people said was I've got connections now with people that I didn't have before so they would then say that their recovery was linked whether they were recovering or recovered or however they wanted to define themselves it was linked to the connections that they built up through the service okay, and that yeah, was the most important yeah. I had a PhD student a, a wonderful PhD student from Athens called Lena who looked at drug services in Athens and she found a very similar thing that people felt as soon as they could make that connection and it didn't really matter who it was with or what the connection was it was that connection that was really important so I think that probably helps and going back to the rave thing to me raving clubbing it's all about connections isn't it it's connecting with the music connecting with people around you and connecting with your own body so almost like the holy trinity so so you know yeah. i think that's really important to think about that you can change but you're always probably going to have a little bit of elements of yourself that you bring through over the years and i think saying i'm a warrior that's not changed unfortunately <laughs> so you know sometimes you have to just live with your live with your thoughts don't you but yeah i do think people can change and i think sometimes having access to various different kinds of therapy for example got some friends that are, are undergoing therapy at the moment like trauma related stuff and they are themselves but they do seem to be emerging as a new new more confident person so that's really nice to see and I think it's as I mentioned access to therapy for all I think is really important because you might not be able to change completely on your own I think a lot of people need connections and help to change if that's what they want to achieve. You mentioned community and connections there and one thing that I found when I hear a lot of especially young girls or teenage girls or young adults women talk about their eating disorders and their recovery is that they will find a supportive community at the start who will support them with their eating disorder but then when they start recovering they almost feel a pressure because they feel like they're bound to it or they don't want to leave it or people might pressure them to I don't know, even at their worst, you know, you see the likes of the, the pro-anorexia yeah. accounts and the pro-eating disorder accounts popping yeah. up. So what are your thoughts on this? And you also explored an element in your dissertation about where you found girls with anorexia, or some girls, I should say, had almost snobby attitudes towards those with bulimia. So can you just talk about this as well? How dangerous Yeah, that's interesting. So it was at a time when pro-anorexia 
it was more like message boards. I mean, it wasn't social media at the time when I did my work. It wasn't social media as we know now. And pro anorexia sites, a pro anything sites really are interesting because, as you say, they can feel like a sense of support. And actually, I think eating disorders can become someone's dominant identity. That maybe can be dangerous, but it also sort of makes sense. It always used to make me laugh, you know, the kind of anorexia, bulimia distinction. And you get this in relation to drug users as well. So you know, whenever I interview drug users about other drug users, so if you interview recreational drug users, they'll say, oh, I'm not a junkie. You know, they'll always define them. Or nitty. Say, that's the, that's the other it? Phrase, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, I told yeah. you I don't know any cool words there. But, <laughs> but yeah, so they, they would always define. So if you think about the way that people define themselves, and this kind of comes from sociology and social research around identity, we often have relational identity. So that means the way that we position ourselves in the world is is kind of what we're not as much as what we are. So if you think about clubbers often say, well, you know, we're not drinkers who have fights and that kind of thing. We're the civilised ones. So there's always this comparing, isn't there? We do it constantly. Everyone does it. So I think that's what was happening in relation to anorexia and bulimia is there's, you know, we are, anorexics had this slightly snobby attitude, at least in my study anyway. You know, we're the ones that are in control and bulimics are the ones that are out of control. And being in control is quite a cultural norm anyway, isn't it? Particularly if you're a young woman we're expected to be in control at all times. So I think often when people talk about their identities and use them to define themselves against other people, that's quite a human thing to do, I think. But maybe it could be dangerous because, you know, it could reinforce what is a negative identity, ultimately anorexia. It's one of the most dangerous mental health conditions that people can have. So, you know, in that sense, it's a negative identity, isn't it? And I think that Mm. can be dangerous at least in terms of the kind of competitive nature between some young women and that, and they're encouraged to be like that that isn't something that's necessarily coming from them I think women well people in general are expected to kind of compare ourselves you know if we've got the latest best thing or you know if we've got the coolest going on the coolest holiday or whatever it might be there's a lot of pressure to achieve and to have nice things I think that's I think that can kind of make it quite difficult for people there are quite a few mental health advocates who campaign for better treatment and awareness around eating disorders and body image conditions. I've interviewed some of them, you know, Hope Virgo is one of the most famous ones in the UK, but I've also interviewed men. So Tom Robert and Danny Bowman are really great. When you were growing up, do you think your anorexia would have gotten to the place it did? Or would you have been able to manage better if you had seen role models like them who had recovered and we're speaking about it openly. Yeah, 100%. I think I only actually really realised I had anorexia. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. I went into the local library and got this book out. And I remember reading this thing about this thing called anorexia and these different behaviours. I was like, oh, that's me. I didn't honestly realise. <laughs> I mean, this is pre-social media. And it wasn't something that was discussed ever on TV. The only, the only other time mm. I remember thinking was Princess Diana. Princess Diana yeah. famously spoke about her eating disorder. And I remember thinking... I don't really feel like I've got much in common with Princess Diana. Maybe I have. So, yeah, of course. I think it's really good that people have got role models or people are talking about, you know, their own journeys. The only thing I would say is that sometimes I think there's this idea of, oh, it's all fine to talk about mental health now. You know, you've got, we've got these fantastic influencers. Some. And, yeah. Yes. So it's, it's fine to talk about <laughs> some mental health issues. Don't often hear people talking about things like schizophrenia, for example. Or borderline. Yeah, borderline personality disorder. So, so I think there's, a, there's an element of that. And it's also in some context. So if you think about in the workplace, 
I mean, we're seeing this with NHS workers at the moment, nurses in particular, massive mental health issues, a high percentage of NHS workers are off with stress and basically PTSD. And I think that's sometimes not really acknowledged that people are expected to kind of soldier on, especially if they work in a certain profession or they've got maybe they've got kids or whatever it might be. People are expected to just keep going. And I think actually in terms of escape routes, getting help, whilst influencers and people talking about mental health issues is really important, the therapy and the support and the the services need to be there. You know what I was saying about how if people can put themselves forward and say, I need help, because they might have seen someone talking about their own recovery journey on social media, if that help then isn't there, they might never ask for that help again. And I think that's really sad. Before we move on to other issues in your journey, what is your relationship like with food now, with your body now? And do you feel like you've, like you said, overcome the anorexia? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think as you get older, you do have to accept certain things. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think there's an element of that. The other thing that sometimes happens with people with eating disorders, because it's obviously men as well, is they'll turn to a more kind of fitness body you know getting to yes, the gym and time. Yeah. running is a big one I mean lots and lots of actually lots of ex-clubbers are also runners which always makes me laugh it's like searching <laughs> for the high that, Look at Bez. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a lot about that so that's obviously probably a more positive identity and, and lifestyle to move towards but also again has its issues doesn't it so yeah I think a yes is the short answer uh, it helps that um, my partner's absolutely fantastic cook. So I actually hate cooking. So <laughs> one of the reasons I've got a good relationship with food is because uh, my nice tea arrives every night. <laughs> I don't have to do anything. You locked yeah, out there. Totally. <laughs> Just the washing up, that's all. <laughs> so, yeah, this is well going back many, many years. So I think you actually go, that relates to the question you said before, but can you be recovered or can you be a different person? I don't know about different, but definitely not suffering in any way now from concern about eating. But still, as a woman, you know, still worried about what you look like and how many lines I'm getting or whatever it might be. (laughs) (laughs) We spoke about benzodiazepines on your academic journey, Karenza. I want to talk about it from your own personal perspective, because you did struggle for four years Mm -hmm. with benzodiazepines. So can you explain to the listeners what it did to your body and I guess as well, this is something that I talk about a lot with people who have used substances, the gabble mate sort of argument of what did it do for you? What was the reason behind? Yeah, that relates to the coping strategies issue, doesn't it? It was yeah. a, a incredibly difficult time where my career was not going in a direction that I wanted it to. Um, a relationship that I'd had for many years uh, had broken down, it, uh, amicably, but still broken down. And I just couldn't sleep. And Benzos were a practical solution to a practical problem. I couldn't sleep. I had a lot of work on. I've always suffered from insomnia. So I think that, that, yeah, it was a solution, a coping strategy. At the time, I was originally prescribed because I basically had got so anxious I couldn't sleep. So I was originally prescribed, but only for two weeks. So going back to what I said previously about how one of the issues around illicit medications is that you can initially be prescribed them, but you know GPs aren't keen on doing repeat prescriptions if you've then got access to them online which I did have then I just continued with the illicit and that's obviously really problematic so the availability of some of these medications I think is problematic if I had if I hadn't been available in the way that they were to me I'm not 100% sure I would have 
been you know continued I wouldn't have known really where to go out to get them so I think that's one important point so benzos it's quite akin to having an issue with alcohol I guess so as I said they work on your GABA receptors they're what called an anilexic so they kind of make you relax but also relax to the point where your prefrontal cortex you know the decision making part of your brain which is the same decision making part of your brain which tends to go away when you've had too much to drink okay so that kind of reckless thing that you get with GABA which you get from alcohol you also get from benzos so I found myself doing things that were not in character and I think that that was one of the sort of red flags I guess for me I only really realized after maybe a year and a half that I really had the problem had absolutely no idea what to do about it. The drug services are particularly set up for people with problems with heroin and crack and also alcohol. And strangely, I didn't feel like drug services were a place I could go. Mm -hmm. I did eventually end up in drug services, NHS drug services, and they were absolutely fantastic. So I've got a lot of respect for for people that work in such drug services because it's not an easy job. So I did eventually get the help, but I think one of the reasons it sort of went on for so long is I just had really no idea what to do. So, yeah, I think I'd say getting information, I feel like if I, ironically, even though I was a drugs research, I didn't feel like I knew that much about those particular medications. You know, I don't know that much, for example, about SSRIs. It's not something that I looked at in my research. So you don't always know about, you know, the impact of different substances. So, yeah, I do really wish that I had known more about it. I probably wouldn't have trod the path, probably wouldn't have even started down that route. So ended up basically, I don't quite know how to put it, Freddie, uh, basically losing my mind, not being myself and being physically in danger to the point of, you know, problems with my heart and that kind of thing. So ended up kind of coming to a crisis point and again helped by NHS mental health services through my local A&E and I just feel like again if they hadn't been there they had a mental health nurse on duty at the time that I went in and again she pretty much clocked what was wrong with me and what was up straight away and I got all the help that I needed took about three years uh, where we now 17 took about two years to get back on track and feel much more like myself so again as I said this you know services being there when they're needed at the point where you're at crisis is so important. So yeah, benzos, absolutely hate them. I hate them. I know it sounds strange. I've, I, I do some work around them. I've given papers about benzodiazepines on the dark net. I have talked about them professionally. You know, and I, I'm so interested in drugs. I pretty much love, I love all drugs. It's so interesting. But benzos, I hate. I don't even like looking at pictures of them. I've got this real weird aversion mm. now. It's like a trigger. Yeah, it is. Obviously not a trigger to take them. The idea of even just get them away from me it's really interesting because where I live and this is some work that's been done by Professor Rob Ralphs at Manchester Met so near where I live in Manchester it's one of the biggest benzo markets street benzo markets there is in probably the north of England literally five minutes from my road and I think this sort of undermines what I said earlier about availability because the idea of having anything to do with benzos now you know it just sets me off makes me think oh god no how awful so you know availability is actually the only main thing it's about whether or not you feel like you've moved away from that particular coping strategy what 
rubbish coping strategy to have uh, pursued but there you go I definitely learned my yeah, lesson. Maybe nightmares yeah I learned my lesson there just that yeah just have that you know lavender pillow spray or something that would have been <laughs> so yeah that's the story of benzos and it's uh most benzo users are actually more they're more likely to be opiate and heroin users who develop problems and benzos are implicated in uh, lots of drug-related deaths, as of gabapentines as well. So, you know, pretty nasty class of substances, if not used in exactly the right way. And also, as I mentioned before about polydrug use, you know, mixing substances. I mean, I used to sometimes drink and take benzos. That's incredibly dangerous. So, you know, it, it's just about finding out, and getting knowledge and making informed decisions as best you can, I guess. The final thing we're going to talk about, Krenza, is... COVID because you wanted to unpack this collective trauma you said we'd all gone through. Unpack it then for me. I think one of the most difficult things around the pandemic has been its impact on young people and Mm. I think that to a certain extent that impact I don't know if it's being ignored it's certainly being compounded by I mentioned you know lack of funding in children and, and young people's mental health services for example so I think that a lot of young people have had quite traumatic experiences. If you think about the idea that everyone's home is the safest place for them to be is quite problematic, depending on people's living situation. So let's say a young LGBTQ plus young person living with a family who has got a problem with their sexuality is a different experience, you know, to a young person that gets on with their parents and, you know, lives in a nice big house, big garden. If you think about the impact of the pandemic on, let's say, black minority ethnic communities, young people in those communities as well, obviously a higher rate of death from COVID amongst some communities. So that's impacting on children and young people. And I think that, that there's a lot of trauma, also obviously NHS workers or workers more generally. And I mentioned about drug services. I mean, homeless charities and drug services went through a lot during the pandemic, getting people off the streets, making sure people had their methadone prescriptions, for example. You know, so much going on behind the scenes, which we often don't think about. So personally, I think we've been through this kind of traumatic experience. Actually, maybe it isn't particularly collective. I think it's very variable depending on people's circumstances. Mm. If I think about, so for example, you know, I teach um, criminology at Newcastle Uni and I've been doing seminars with my students about social control. So we've been talking about sociology, social control. And I asked them, who's the agents of social control you've encountered most in the pandemic? And one of the students said, campus security, (laughs) which made me laugh. Oh, I bet, yeah. They were just walking. So this is a group of young women who live together in a student flat on campus. Uh, Campus security, what men walking in, uh, obviously related to the COVID rules, you know, the rule of six and all that. And, you know, said it was actually quite a traumatic experience. And I think I've done some work recently with a colleague that's at Sheffield Uni about young working class people's leisure during the pandemic. And also just how difficult it is now for young people to have spaces that are kind of safe, that are affordable. If you think about how a lot of young people's incomes have been affected, a lot of young people have lost their jobs because they're in things like hospitality, dance Mm. culture, you know, bouncers, all that kind of thing. So there's been a lot of job losses, financial hardship as well. So I think putting those all together, the unequal impact of the pandemic, I'm not saying that it's been worse for young people. I think they've had a different set of problems. They haven't had necessarily the the fear of the virus itself, but I think they've been very impacted by the inequalities that have kind of been worsened 
by the pandemic and, and obviously attending school and that kind of thing is has been an issue as well I mean lots to be thinking about I think even things like young people's drug use has changed a little bit there was a big drop in MDMA during the pandemic obviously because all the nightclubs and stuff were shut and there was a kind of polarization of some young people drinking a lot more than they had previously and then other people oh, yeah, I can imagine yeah, that exactly yeah the you know the coping strategy thing that we were talking about same with uh, young people with problems with cannabis because some young people do have problems with mm-hmm. cannabis and that's often not acknowledged so so yeah I think there's so many different things going on I don't know if we're going to have a conversation really about how you know a national conversation a dialogue about how are we going to support the young people that have experienced this really difficult time and the length of time it's been going on as well so I think a lot of mental health issues rest around uncertainty. I'm doing some work at the moment on this idea of hope and how music relates to, to, to hope and people's hoping for the future. You know, how music can be like a, a balm, like a salve for your soul when you're feeling really down. And I think, you know, that there might be ways there that we can help young people who maybe they want to express themselves creatively, for example, that might help deal with some of the trauma that they've been through. So, so yeah, I'm not sure if that's really and unpacking the pandemic but I just re- I suppose I'd just like to say I think we really need to think about how the impact of the pandemic on children and young people and that's because I'm a youth researcher as well that's that's always been a concern of mine. I don't know how I would have gotten through the lockdown when I was a young person no. I was going through some of my worst mental health experiences between 18 and 21 I was having to unpack all the trauma I'd gone through in school yeah. if it happened during school god knows how it would have impacted me because I was getting bullied yeah. at the time and for a lot of these kids, they entered lockdown before they started their clubbing yeah. careers. They're now 20 to 21 and they've lost out on those really important mm-hmm. years and fun. Mm-hmm. I fear for some, Crenza, that their emotional maturity has been stunted as well. Mm-hmm. And we already know that a lot of Gen Z are more emotionally anxious. Yeah. You know, some can't make phone calls to yeah. GPs at the extreme end yeah. and stuff like that. Is that a concern yeah. for you, especially as they haven't had those amazing club nights where they might meet new friends discover new artists or just make mistakes that they would have got out of their system when they hit 23 24 and then 25 onwards when I kind of say that most people end up sort of becoming that yeah yeah probably. 25 it keeps getting delayed I'd say more like 45 yeah. Pretty, um, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah I think there's a couple of things there there is the practical thing isn't it if you if you're 18 you've not been out and then, you're, you know, your first night out is one of the sort of first opening up. You know, like you said, you've not had these practical experiences of getting things wrong. So I think that is an issue. So there's the practical thing. I think there's also, it's not valuing young people's leisure as a way of helping them, you know, their mental health and their development of their identity and their emotional well-being and all that. And this is actually the paper that I was talking about. We've been doing some work around young people's leisure during the pandemic, how a lot of young people were quite demonised for meeting up and doing what teenagers do. They want to spend time with their Mm. friends. If you think about, you mentioned bullying at school. I mean, one of the issues around bullying, because I've done some work on cyberbullying over the years as well, and uh, is that think about your identity when you're a teenager is so revolved around your friends, you know, your friends and how you're perceived by your peers. Yeah, your world. Exactly, that shapes your world, doesn't it? And so... Young people during the pandemics, they haven't had necessarily those opportunities. Those opportunities are very stratified. So if you have money, you'll be more likely to have a decent internet connection. 
for example, to be able to kind of chat with your friends or do your online lessons. One of the things we found is the university I was at previously, we had more working class students and a lot of them didn't have access to a decent internet. So they would drop out quite a lot during online lessons. The university ended up giving them laptops, but obviously that didn't help with the internet connection. There's all these tiny things that people don't really think about, I think. So yeah, I, I do worry. I think in terms of going out and maybe consuming music, making new friends, meeting partners, mm. you know, at that age as well, you're meeting. And that's been quite hard. It's not really been available for young people, not just clubbing, but also if you think about, you know, sports clubs and that kind of thing. Loads of different activities that young people hanging out in the park or hanging out downside. I think teenagers would do that. I, I used to hang out in car parks and just chat, you know, <laughs> and I think that's what you know, a lot of teenagers do. And I don't think they've had that available to them. So I think that's probably going to have an effect, but who knows what that effect's going to be. Let's reflect on your journey now, Krenz, before we move on to the mental health chat. So first off, how has all these experiences shaped you into the person you are today and what have they taught you about yourself? That's an interesting question. I think i just like to think of it as being open to speaking to lots of different people. So there's like a practical lesson, I think, when you go out clubbing is that People are really friendly. Obviously, there's an element of drug use that enhances that. But I would say, generally speaking, people are really friendly. And I've found that over the years, I've been clubbing for like 30 years now, over the years, that spills out into your everyday life. So my partner always says, I'm really embarrassing because I'm like that person in the queue that has to speak to the person behind them and in front of them. <laughs> it's like, you don't have to speak to everybody when you're out, friends up. <laughs> couldn't get away with that no <laughs> oh yes of course this is Manchester we're talking about Freddie so you know people talk to each other on the tram which is unbelievable <laughs> you know when I first came to Manchester I remember this woman sat next to me first time I'd ever used the tram having spent years in London and she started talking to me and I was like oh my god what what what's she gonna do so I think going out clubbing and talking to loads of different people it's, it's just practice isn't it the more you do it the better mm. you get less confident you know, less worried you get about what they're going to do if they don't want to talk to you though like, oh, well whatever going back to that thing about young people and their first nights out after the lockdown the first night we went out we went to a techno night I was t- chatting to these youngsters so they must have been 19 so they've never been clubbing before and they said to me is this what it's always like and I was like yeah I just thought that just made my heart melt because I thought wow they're going to have this journey let's hope you know this amazing exciting time with their friends and with the music and everything. So yeah, I, I think being friendly and being able to talk to lots of different people is probably the main influence that has. And obviously if you're lecturing as well, I spend a lot of time, which is fantastic, just talking to my students. So they teach me a lot more sometimes I think than I teach them. And if you could go back and talk to the 16-year-old Crenza who was struggling with her anorexia or the 18-year-old arriving at university for the first time, or the adult Karenza struggling with her benzodiazepine use, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? Speak to people, ask for help, nothing wrong with it. And generally speaking, people are wonderful and helpful. And if they can't help you, they'll kind of send you to someone that can. So that's the advice I would give. I really wish, particularly in relation to benzos, that I'd ask for help earlier. That would be my main piece of advice.
we have come to our final topic of conversation, Karenza, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we can, on the podcast, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Um, tip top. Excellent. What age do you think you were when you first became self-aware of your mental health and the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Wow, probably quite late on. I was a bit of a slow learner when it comes to the, the mental health <laughs> issues. <laughs> Too busy doing academic stuff. Wow, probably not until 37, 38? Late 30s. Okay. Late 30s. Was there a eureka moment or was it a It was a, oh, I nearly died, so I kind of need to think <laughs> about things. <laughs> That's a big one to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's how dangerous benzos can be. So that was right. quite an epiphany. I think I'd probably thought about the fact I wasn't doing that well previously, but I hadn't actually, you know, it's that rock bottom. Everyone says they've, they've got a rock bottom, don't they? And sometimes that's a turning point. I'm not 100% sure if that's the case. I think you can have multiple turning points that end up not being turning points, and then you eventually reach the turning point that is the turning point, and off you go. So. It was quite late on. And again, as I said, just wish that I'd thought about asking for help prior to that moment. Yeah. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big moment or a big burden had been lifted? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant, easy and normal to do? Wow. It was when I was about 16 and... The GP sent me to like a weighing because of uh, eating disorder. And God, sounds like boxing. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> it was terrible. And actually, research oh. now shows that asking anorexics to weigh themselves is a really bad idea. Oh, surprise, <laughs> yeah, surprise. Really bad idea. Like I wasn't <laughs> weighing myself every minute of every day anyway. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a problem. But I remember that. And I remember distinctly thinking, this isn't helpful. So I didn't have an idea of what would be helpful, but I remember thinking this isn't helpful. Uh, and so unfortunately, my first kind of encounter, I guess, with services wasn't great. And that it wasn't until, you know, later on in the day, once I'd gone to uni and started working at the eating disorders charity or volunteering at the eating disorders charity. And even then I found it hard, but then started having a little bit of counselling, you know, nothing full on. I suppose that's the first time you get a chance to think about what's going on in your mind so again this wasn't something that I'd spoke about with family or friends it was all me interacting with the service because I just didn't feel like I could talk to family and friends which is kind of sad I think. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be a thing people might say to you it could be a sound it could be a sensation a book a film or have you not figured all of them out yet? No, I haven't figured them all out. That's a good point. Yeah, I think sometimes you start feeling really, I, I mean, for me, it manifests as anxiety to the point where I can't sit still, can't work or anything, you know, my mind's worrying, can't sleep, that kind of stuff. Sometimes I can't work out, as you say, what the trigger is. So sometimes you have to just go with it, you know, and try and manage the symptoms at the time without necessarily working through your mind what the trigger was. Other times it's very obvious. So, you know, during lockdown, I found the will they won't they open close uncertainty Mm. you know all that kind of thing I found that very difficult I've also got um, a chronic neuropathic pain condition called burning mouth syndrome which is related to my benzo use and that means I've got kind of pain in my mouth quite a lot and when I get stressed it gets worse 
and then that's a trigger for getting stressed so there's quite a lot I have to do I mentioned Pilates before to try and I always think of it it's like turning down a knob on a cooker you know if you if you're you're making some pasta or something, you've got it up too high, you have to turn it down a little bit, don't you? That's how I think of it, <laughs> trying to turn everything down a bit. So that is definitely a trigger. If a mouth starts burning, then that can get into a bit of a vicious circle. Yeah, so I haven't worked them all out, but I find that quite a helpful way to think. You know, it's almost like, yeah, little pitfalls. They go for a jungle and there's like pitfalls with vegetation over them and you've got to avoid them. So you need to know where they are to be able to avoid it. But in terms of a trigger, the pandemic I mentioned, and also just work stress, big pile yeah. of essays to mark and want to get them done, get good, good feedback out to the students. So that can be quite stressful. <laughs> Conversely then, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And also maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Yes, I like the second part of that question because I tried mindfulness and I was one of those typical people that thought of it as like something that I needed to be good at, which is not the right way to approach it, apparently. But I was like, I can't not do it. So mindfulness didn't help me, but I know it helps a lot of other people. And that's when I found Pilates, because it's kind of like mindfulness, but for busy people. <laughs> um, so I found that really helpful. My partner and I took up running. I've never been much of a runner, always a dancer, but we took up running during the lockdown and that's been fantastic and something that I've kind of continued so I mentioned about there are so many ex-clubbers or current clubbers that go running I just see the two things as quite similar <laughs> in a way it's physical you know physical relaxation so they're the things that have helped yeah apart from the mindfulness that didn't help that much for me but as I said I think it helps for other people and I'm going to say clubbing one of the reasons I really struggled in lockdown was because we couldn't like clubbing and the way I see it, for me, I feel like it's a way of almost like cleaning your mind, <laughs> you know, refreshing. Mm. I don't want to say reset. That's just too weird. Uh, but a refresh, like an MOT or something, a service of your brain. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it clears out a lot of the worries. I feel like I've got a bit more of a space to think. I always seem to do better at work, especially when it comes to creative stuff, the week after club night. So I think that's been so interesting. I've always noticed that over the years. So is that something about it relaxing you and maybe giving you a perspective that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're just one tiny dot in a big crowd. So we probably shouldn't worry too much. What has been the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? It could be mental health related, but it doesn't have to be. There's a book and her name is quite hard to say. She's an American author, Horn Batcher, I think you say it. It's called Wasted, and it's about her personal journey with eating disorders and a little bit about problem drug use as well. I read it when I was, what, 24, 25, and that really turned around my understanding of eating disorders generally, but eating disorders as a personal issue. That was probably one of the most helpful books. So, yeah, Wasted, it's called. A really good read. Really, really interesting. Almost like a sociological consideration of the issue as well as a personal one and that really appealed to me and as a final question this is a broad one what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it so reduce stigma is the first thing and that applies in relation to drugs and drug use as well you see that stigma around any kind of mental health issue dependency issue 
So that's the first, and that's a really difficult thing to do. Again, that's another programme to talk about how we would, would we reduce stigma. So that's the first thing. I think access to services, I've mentioned quite a bit. And I mean, it's called low threshold in drug services. So that means you think you need help and you walk straight through the door and there's someone to help you. So that's the other thing. In terms of, let's say, black minority ethnic communities, I think it's important to have more black and Asian counsellors and therapists. I've known quite a lot of friends who have wanted to access therapy particularly around experiences of racist bullying and they felt like they haven't that you know it's not literally not enough practitioners from those communities to kind of go around and so I think that's important to encourage a more diverse population in terms of working in services as well that applies to drug services I think so that's another issue that is important to me and then also to be able to ask for help you need to be able to have access to a range of therapies that might be appropriate at different times of someone's life or for different problems as well so group therapy might be fine for some but not for everyone so I think that's also important so yeah I think stigma services and and some kind of diversity in in the offices offer as well. Dr Karenza Moore thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast and chatting to me. Thank you Freddie. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Carenza for being my special guest on this episode's pod, for checking in with me and talking all about drugs and mental health. I'll put some links to where you can follow Carenza on social media and find out more about club research in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, you can write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please go to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make one-off donation. That's in our GoFundMe, in our Linktree, and across all our channels. Please buy a ticket to the next Checking In Live. That link is also on our Linktree too. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.